to come down the road and to, to worship together with you. I think there's the, the map of the city of Southampton, and across the city, hundreds and hundreds of believers are meeting together to worship the Lord Jesus. Sometimes I think of, of uh, services as being rather like flavors of packets of crisp. There's the cheese and onion, there's the salt and vinegar and the, the plain. So many different flavors. And we, we, we feel comfortable about the flavors we like, but there are some, oh, don't give me salt and vinegar, I just can't handle that. But somehow the Lord loves each expression of the church. There's just one church in this city, one church, the one church of Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, all the scaffolding will be demolished. This is scaffolding. We have Baptist scaffolding, Anglican scaffolding, all these fine buildings, all these expressions of church. But one day, they're all going to be removed and we go to be one people as God intends. So we're looking at the church in Corinth, but just think for a moment about the church in Southampton. Each church has its own problems. Some churches started as healthy expressions of God's work. They were planted out by other congregations that were concerned to see the, the body of Christ and God's kingdom extended. Some congregations started in rebellion. The Anglican Church, of which I'm a part, started in rebellion. Um, all sorts of mixed motives have gone into the different expressions of the church today. And each church has its problems. Let's just think about some problems the church in Corinth had. Several years ago, a church planter with a wide and influential ministry was approached by several concerned members of a large central church with tales about the church that would make your hair stand on end. The leader was especially concerned because he'd planted the church in that town. The story went like this. The deputation said, our church is a mess. It has splits in it that mean that some people won't talk to others who were baptized by leaders whose technique and credentials were considered inferior. We have a lot of well-educated people in the church, university types, but they don't talk to the blue-collar workers. In fact, they're openly sarcastic about people of what they regard as inferior educational standards. For all the brains in the church... There's a host of stupid things going on. The immorality that made our city a subject of shame all around the country is now in the church too. We have to shake our heads sometimes, they told the church planter. You know, there's one guy who seduced his stepmother away from his dad and they're actually living together. You'd think the people in the church would be horrified. They're not. They tell jokes about it. They actually think it makes us broad-minded and liberal. Live and let live, they say. Church services are a complete shambles. Everyone talks at the same time. No one listens. Those who pray in tongues babble away at the top of their voice, trying to outdo each other. I've seen visitors come to the door, shake their heads and walk away totally confused. Just as well they don't stay. 
When the potluck dinner starts, all the rich folk bring out their huge hampers of food and vintage wine and party up large in one corner while the poor nibble on their sandwiches in another part of the hall. There's no contact. The well-to-do stuff their faces, then roll home drunk from church. Perhaps it wouldn't be so bad if we at least knew what we believed. There are arguments over doctrine all the time about really basic stuff like whether Jesus rose from the dead and whether marriages should stay together. We were going to come and see you earlier, but we've been, told, we've been trying to sort out quite a bit of strife between a couple of members over a failed business venture that's gone sour, involved a bunch of people taking sides over who's right and who's wrong. It's in court now, a big lawsuit with one guy claiming millions from the other. What a headache. Do you think we have a solid future as a church, they asked the leader. Do you think you could give us a hand? That is the church in Corinth that we read about in 1 Corinthians. Divisions, hostility, confusion over what they believed, different party factions, hostility. And yet, God says about the church, you are my people, you are the body of Christ, you are my representatives here on earth. So although we're going to journey back to Corinth and look at what it was like, um, we can see the landscape is very different in Greece. This is the church that Paul established. Go through these pictures pretty quickly. I don't think they're very clear on the screen there. Everyone eyes right. There's the Corinth Temple of Apollo. You can see seven pillars there. I think it originally had 37. Jan and I went there on one of these tours that you can do of biblical places. And it is, it's always impressive seeing these archaeological ruins because you really do need a very strong dose of imagination to be able for them to come alive. And you can just think, oh, yes. These were real people living in a, a very cosmopolitan um, center, a pagan center, lots of, it was, a, it was a, a seaport, so lots of comings and goings. There's the, there's the, the West Key of the world, of, the, of ancient Corinth. Um, there's the ruins of the synagogue, that's where Paul would have preached. If you look over the, the harbor and the bay, in the, in the bottom left-hand corner you can see the ancient ruins of, of, of Corinth. That's a little plan. I think that was the best picture I took when I was there of, of, a, of a signpost, just visualizing what it was like. Very big, important city. Cosmopolitan. The church there was culturally a million miles away from all the pagan influences there. It had uh, so many temples. There was a lot of sacred prostitution, so-called. Immorality was rife. And that was the context for Paul coming to preach the foolishness of a message, the message of Christ crucified. It sounded ridiculous 
to these educated Greeks. How could God reveal himself in human form and then die on a cross and this somehow be the means by which people are reconciled to God? The foolishness of preaching. And yet he said it was the power of God to rescue people. Today, in our own city of Southampton, the message of Jesus sounds so foolish to so many. It seems so far removed from our everyday work experience, our everyday lives. So although the, the, the church at Corinth is so different from our own society, in many ways, the hostility the misunderstanding that we face as a church today is very little different from what those first believers experienced in Corinth. We're going to go to the house of Aquila and Priscilla. This was the best picture I could come across. It's not in Corinth, but in Ephesus. It shows a rich house. Let's come in our imaginations to the house of Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Aquila is a Christian businessman from North Turkey. Priscilla, his wife, is a Roman from the capital. Wherever they go with their far-flung tent-making business and leather trade, their home hosts a Christian church. Their house in Corinth is spacious. It has a portico, a central room, partly roofed and partly open to the fresh air, with a goldfish pond in the center and a small fountain. A number of side rooms open up from the central enclosure where people can gather with the main room as the focus. At around five in the afternoon, people start turning up. Some from the market, some from the baths. They come for worship and to spend the evening with other believers. They bring and share their food and drink. Usually there's enough to go round. Then the news is shared and the instruments are brought out, similar to our flute, violin and guitar. One person suggests a song, a simple one, and they all learn it. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. They sing it together, and then as a round. One or two people describe how Christ did indeed awaken them from the dead, and how his light has shone on them. They sing some more, one of the ancient psalms of David. Then Priscilla begins teaching from the Old Testament. And Aquila shows how these scriptures have been wonderfully fulfilled in Jesus and the lives of the Christians themselves. A visiting believer from Judea pulls out of his pocket a battered list of some of the sayings of Jesus. And these are learned by heart so they can be applied to their daily lives. Someone stands up and gives a direct prophetic message to the assembled group in the name of Jesus. Someone else speaks out in an unknown language, and another interprets it. One person in a corner says, 
I believe the Lord has given me a picture during our time of prayer and I would like to share it with you all. The congregation is appreciative and edified. Aquila, the leader for the evening, stands up. We mustn't leave without recalling what Jesus did to make us his people. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and set us free from the grip of evil habits that held us captive. Let us do as he did. Take and eat bread in remembrance of him. Let us rejoice in his living presence among us tonight. And let us go out to serve him tomorrow with renewed dedication. Reverently they pass the bread from hand to hand, reflecting on what it cost Jesus to allow his body to be broken for them. Then the cup goes round the central room and the side rooms, packed with eager families and friends. There's silence. Then the blessing is said, and quietly they move out into the night to their homes, prepared to live for their Lord the next day. That's what it must have been like in the ancient days in Corinth. No books, no fixed liturgy, no special building, no monopoly by the spiritual leaders, no sharp distinction between the supper party and the supper of the Lord. It's a lot for us to learn about such a picture. I began with a, describing the church in Corinth focusing on all its problems. And now I've just shown a picture of perhaps another aspect of the church's life together. When you think of this church, when you think of the church, any church in the city, do you focus on the problems or do you focus on the possibilities? Do you celebrate all the good things there are? Or are you someone who sees the glass half empty? Oh, we're not doing it right here. Because I guarantee that wherever you go, whichever expression of church there is that we're a part of, there's two ways of looking at it. The glass is half empty or it's half full. We focus on the problems there are and how it could be better. Or we celebrate and rejoice all the good things. It's my suspicion that the Lord in heaven looks upon the good things and delights whenever he sees someone expressing faith and singing from a heart that's full of worship that he delights to see our relationships where we're loving one another, where we're seeking falteringly to reach out into the community and touch other people's lives. There will come a day when all the things that we can criticize will just fade into the background and be a distant memory, if even we can recall them. It is so good to be positive about the church of Jesus Christ, even as Jesus is positive. You know, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, describes the church as a body. We read about this in chapter 12, don't we? How we belong to, together. That one part of the body can't say, I don't need you. 
I'm not a part of you. It even says the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And he has said, I, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to do this alone. I need you. You're a part of my life. The life of God is expressed through us. So let's focus on the things that Jesus focuses on. Our life together, our shared life. We're animated by the Holy Spirit who lives with us. I want to pick up on one verse that came across in the reading. Because Paul says this, that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So each of us can say, Christ is my wisdom, my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. You know, when you become a Christian, you have to learn a whole new vocabulary. You have to learn a whole bunch of words like these here. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. What on earth do these mean? They are loaded with meaning. They are rich in, in content. If you're a sort of glass half empty type person, it's good to declare the truth of God's word and say about yourself, Christ is my wisdom. He is my righteousness. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption. He is all these things to me. We're told that Christ is the wisdom of God. The wisest thing that God ever did was to send his son Jesus. And so we are wise insofar as we know Christ. And Christ wants to give us his wisdom. James exhorts us. He says, if you, any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. He'll give it to you generously. He won't find fault with you. He longs for you to be a wise person, making wise decisions about your life, everyday life. So we are wise insofar as we know Jesus, and it should be a daily prayer of ours. Christ, teach me today. Without you, I can do nothing. Didn't Jesus say the same about the Father? Without you, I can do nothing. We are to be dependent upon Christ for our instruction and how we live our lives, but also about church life together, how we do life together. So because of Christ, I have God's wisdom to teach me. Because of Christ, I am in a right relationship with God. I am made righteous. Are you a sinner or a saint? Well, sometimes we say, oh, I'm just a miserable sinner saved by grace. I think there's one place in the New Testament where Christians are described as sinners. But there are at least 250 places where we're described as saints. We were sinners but now we're saints. We have a new nature. We have a new identity. Paul describes himself as chief among sinners. And of course that was true for how he behaved as a non-Christian. 
And there's always a sense in which we should remember where we were. But now we have been made righteous with Christ's righteousness. If you can believe it, we are as sinless in God's eyes as Jesus is. He who did no wrong is perfect before the Father, has given us his nature. So as he tells the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You're not miserable saints, a sinners. You're a miserable saint, maybe. <laughs> We're saints, holy ones, sanctified, made righteous, in a right relationship with God. That word sanctified means to be made holy. We're saints not in the sense that the Catholic Church elevates a few people to superstar status. We're all, it's a level, level playing field. We're either saints or we ain't saints. We're saints if we know Jesus. We have been made holy by him. We've been sanctified. Because of Christ, we are holy, made holy. Because of Christ, I am redeemed. We've been bought back. As he told the Colossians, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We were like slaves, subject to uh, habits and patterns of behavior that couldn't control us. We've been purchased a great cost through the blood of Christ. Now, just as the slaves let, left Egypt and the time of Moses, so we have been brought back out of slavery. Just as God saved the Israelites, just as you could go into Corinth and buy a slave, or you could redeem that slave by paying the right price and set the slave free. So God has set us free. How are we to grow as God's people. One very simple way is to acknowledge the truth of God's Word. I once came across an American preacher who was very positive about the need for Christians to declare and proclaim the truth of God's Word. He had a little uh, sort of mantra which he would teach other Christians. He says, I am redeemed, cleansed, and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Satan has no place in me and no power over me. It's good to affirm the truths that the Bible affirms about us. We are redeemed. We are cleansed. We are sanctified by the blood of Jesus. It doesn't depend on our feelings. It doesn't depend on our circumstances. It depends on the truth of God's Word. If we're to grow as a congregation, we've got to eliminate the negative and accentuate the positive. It's a song, isn't it, somewhere? We've got to focus on the truth of God's Word personally and corporately. We've got to think the best of one another. We've got to ascribe the highest motives to one another. We've got to curb 
criticism and sarcasm. The world is full of it. For years we lived in Canada and it was very different living in a Canadian culture than in British society. When we came back from being missionaries in Kenya, our two children found it hard to get used to living back in England. In fact, our son, I think, was under a bit of a weight, under a bit of depression. He was only, was he eight or ten or something like that? Just a young lad. And there was a culture of, of, of heaviness which you could pick up in the, in, the, in, in the classrooms, in the school, in just the general negativity that there was. You see it in the media, uh, how negative, how critical we are as a people. And then when we moved to Canada, it, it was completely different. There wasn't this heaviness. There wasn't this sarcasm. There wasn't this sort of um, pulling down and tearing down one another. It was much more positive, much, much healthier. Culture is what we swim in. We are we, we, unaware of what we're swimming in as a culture. Um, we need to um, realize that we are being bombarded daily by negative messages. And we need constantly to refocus our attention on the truth of, of God's word and who we are called to be as a people. So across Southampton, hundreds of believers, thousands of believers, each of them called to one task, to seek the kingdom, to work for God in wherever he's called us. Let's pray together now, shall we, for the expression of church that God has placed us in here at Portswood, that we will be salt and light in the community. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your life is in us. We thank you that you've redeemed us, you've cleansed us, You've sanctified us by the blood of Jesus. We pray for that wisdom that we need to lead our daily lives. We pray that you'd help us in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We pray that you'd help us with the choices that we face each day. We pray for your blessing upon us as a people. We pray that we will be salt and light here in Portswood and in our workplaces and in our homes and communities. And just as Paul wrote the letter to the one church in Corinth, so acknowledge before you there is one church of Jesus Christ here in Southampton. And we recognize and honor our brothers and sisters in Christ and pray that you'd lead us into ever more fruitful partnerships, that we might express some of the unity that you desire for us as a people. We thank you for Love Southampton. We thank you for the Southampton Christian Network. We thank you for churches together. We thank you for every group that is working to partner together 
for the sake of the kingdom of God in this city. Thank you for the part that you've called each of us to and pray that we'll be faithful in it. In Jesus' name, amen.